So welcome back, everybody. So this is Jonathan Leiter, also known as Filmmaker Jay, and across from me is my co-host and co-adventurer through film and cinema, Cotton Chivarelli. Hello! So we decided we had to split this documentary marathon into two halves because our first session recording last night went longer than I expected, and I should have known that, because they always go longer than expected. It's, it's part of the beauty, man. It's part of the greatness. But continuing on our marathon of documentary films, we started today's round with a collection of short film docs that I picked out um, from, I want to say, the first 12 pages of shortoftheweek.com. I think we had uh, four films we got from there and then several others that I pulled from YouTube because there are many wonderful niche channels on YouTube that cover things in a documentarian fashion. And the reason I, I picked out some shorts in the first place was because I thought if we're going to cover documentaries, we need to cover some short subject matter as well on interesting, self-contained topics. Because the thing about documentaries is they don't always need to be an hour and 49 minutes, which pretty much everyone, every feature thing we've seen is. Uh, some docs don't even need to be more than 10, 15, some cases just seven minutes long because there may not be that much to say on any given topic uh, or not much more that needs to be said. But in other cases, you get something where, okay, we, we wrote up this prototype doc and we might make it into a feature later to expand upon it. So with that said, uh, let me share with you the list that we covered. First one we saw was... Can We Solve the Bizarre Mystery of Skeleton Lake by the channel Mr. Mythos. The Real Moby Dick was So Much Worse by Ask a Mortician. Do You See What I See, which was a 12-minute short on Short of the Week. Aleatoric, that was an 8-minute short on Short of the Week. And the other two are also from there. So now let's go over these one by one and... Uh, Hell yeah, sounds good. Now, I had um, discovered Mr. Mythos's channel, I want to say, just a, a handful of months ago, because he's relatively new. And the first video he did, I believe I showed you that one as well, which was about a stretch of island rocks that go from the tip of India to another island in the middle of the Indian Ocean. And supposedly it, is, it was built by either a god or a king uh, several thousand years ago. Huh. And supposedly in, uh, in the alternate religion, because you, you have the uh, Hinduism explanation and then you have the Islamic explanation that it is uh, the bridge, it is Adam's bridge, and Adam was supposedly a giant that landed on earth from heaven and he flung these rocks into the ocean by himself. Mm, okay, okay. And... Uh, some of the other videos that Mr. Mythos covered <clears throat> was the Devil's Bible. He had two videos on that. Uh, That's a, for anyone listening, that is a fascinating rabbit hole to jump down. It's a very strange but beautiful book. Yes, it's, it's a book that's like 30 inches tall, 23 inches wide, and more than a foot thick. It's insane. Every page is illuminated, meaning that all of the large capital letters at the beginning of every sentence have gold inlays or, you know, red 
edgings and markings and, and the cover is ridiculous too. It's yeah. insane. Um, the also cover it, is thick with uh, like iron or steel couplings on the, the corners. Isn't it also technically unfinished? No, it's missing pages. Oh, it's missing pages. That's right. Uh, it was flung out of a burning church at one point, and then soon after that, pages were torn out of it, never mm. recovered. Mm. Another video he did recently was on the Shroud of Turin, explaining how bizarre that is. And he actually covered details that I hadn't heard from previous lengthier documentaries about it. But this particular one is a really short video, which was about a lake in the Himalayas that for some bizarre reason has hundreds of skeletons inside this sort of crater lake. Not easy to get to, get to either. It's not like there's a nearby village real, reasonably. You have to do a very long hike to get there. Yes, yeah, like seven hours yeah. out of the way to get there. Yeah. And they all apparently died from a blunt force hit to the, head, the back of the head. Half of the skeletons are a thousand years old, or I should say 1,200 years old, and the other half is 200 years old. So there's a massive gap. There's a gap of a thousand years between them, but some of them are from 800 AD, and the other half are from 1820. And here's the part that got to me. When they DNA, they did, I guess, DNA testing on the bones? Is that what they did? Uh, I'm going to guess, yeah, the, the marrow or may have had some DNA in it. And they basically found that the older ones... Remember, this is in India. The older ones were from Greece. No, the new ones oh, the are new from one. Greece. Oh, well, The new ones are from Greece. The old ones are actual Himalayans. Okay. But still, it's like, what in the world were the Greeks doing there? They had, that's when I knew. This is what, that's what really surprised me. Because at first I was like, okay, these are just some people who went on a pilgrimage and they all died. And it happened again years later. At that point, I thought it was some sort of ritual sacrifice. But when a separate group was from Greece, and understand that there was no major catalog of Greeks visiting India at this particular time. Mm -hmm. uh, no no uh, string of explorations out of Greece. It was primarily French and, and British explorers throughout the 17 and 1800s. Yeah, absolutely insane. Um, so I liked this one mainly for the story. Uh, it was it was a very cool story, a very fascinating one. It was a nice little short piece of strange info that was unexplainable. You know, the visuals were fine. It was images, you know, simple stuff, mm -hmm. standard. Um, standard YouTube fare. Yeah, yeah. Just to, to get something nice out. And, you know, his longer documentaries can go up to 50 minutes. Oh, that's the really weird one that I wish I could have shown you is about the the Enochian language. Send it to me. Which is, um, apparently there is a language that was, it's either real or it was entirely fabricated in, what, the 1300s? Hmm. And it's supposedly the authentic language of angels. Oh my God. With complete understandable syntax, letter system, you can, you can, spell you can write things out with it logically and it's supposed to be the language of angels yes huh i feel like someone invented that but still it is possible that is it is impossible it is possible to create a, a, a unique language it's been done many times yeah it just depends on how likely is it for this person to have done that 
depending on how much uh, accurate records of his life that we have. I see, I see. So the origins of this language come from one person? Uh, two people, technically, but yes, primarily one person. Okay. Um, but yes, I, again, the visuals were very YouTube standard, you know, info, documentary, documentary video. But because the story was so unique um, and really threw you for a loop in the fact that, as I said, oh, a good chunk of these people aren't from the Himalayas. They're from a completely separate continent. That's the part that's really, like, if, it, if, that, if I didn't hear that, I would have been like, okay, this is an interesting story. But, you know, I would have just chalked it up to ritual sacrifice. But this was, that for me makes it something completely new and interesting. Right. And much like we mentioned uh, yesterday that the documentary The Imposter builds off the tradition of the thin blue line, you, you could say that all YouTube documentaries that primarily use images build off the Ken Burns style. Yes, they do. They do derive from Ken Burns. Because they typically don't interview other people. It's all narration and all research and all pictures. Except what they also don't include is in most Ken Burns documentaries, you get some actor re recreating some letters or something. Well, you do. There's, um, there's a lot of tech channels that do explorations of tech history and they will call in their other tech YouTuber buddies to read the dialogue of quotes from these different people in history like um, computer science professors or people that founded tech companies they'll all do that I could have shown you one of those as well uh, but I couldn't think of one off the top of my head fair enough so yeah would I recommend this particular video? Probably. I would highly recommend one of the others I mentioned much more because they will definitely draw you in and you, you will be shocked that you may have never heard of some of these things before. I think it's just interesting enough and just short enough. If, you, if yes. this was like 50 minutes long, I wouldn't recommend it because there just isn't enough right. for a 50-minute long documentary. But the length is perfect. Mm-hmm. And do I think that this particular video would inspire you to, to watch the rest of the channel? That's also likely. And would I recommend the channel in and of itself? Absolutely. It is it's probably, it, it's the channel I am most drawn to and, and hope to see more interesting stuff from. Because um, another channel that we covered a video from called Bedtime Stories is very similar. And I've enjoyed Bedtime Stories for uh, two years now at least. So the third one was The Real Moby Dick Was So Much Worse by Ask a Mortician. And her channel is really quite lovely. I would say a third of her recent videos, at least. I, I haven't looked back at her oldest catalog. But a third of her recent videos are on historical events that led to unique or unusual deaths. And then... The other two-thirds of her channel is devoted to speaking about the funeral industry and types of ways to um, bury or preserve or uh, cremate people's bodies because she she's in the industry and wants to see new advancements made to make the industry more 
natural and more green and, and more energy efficient, mm-hmm. uh, less like turning, costly. Like turning people into trees, so to speak. Yes. She, uh, she likes that one. She also likes the idea of uh, liquefaction. I forget what the I've proper of term of that is. Where but they basically use water to break down your body. Yeah. They, they, they uh, liquefy all of the stuff except the bones, and then they super dry the bones into a powder. Mm. And uh, I, I guess it turns out to be more green than normal cremation is. And she, she'd like to see people not have to pay so much for funerals. You don't have to pay... You shouldn't have to pay that much for a coffin. You shouldn't even need a coffin at all. Oh, no, a funeral shouldn't be a five to eight grand affair. Yeah, there needs to be there. There needs to be thoughtful but cost-effective ways to to deal with your 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 dead. When I um, so I had my my grandmother on my mom's side and my grandfather on my dad's side died fourteen days apart from each other, um, two years ago. And I got a good window into certain things. To be fair, my grandfather on my dad's side was a veteran, so it was all, a lot of things were already paid for and taken care of. But on my mom's side, we learned some very interesting things. Without going into too much detail, my grandmother passed away in Baltimore, but we were going to bury her in Georgia. And we learned that if you want to transport a body across state lines, we assumed um, a mere death certificate from a hospital would suffice or from the nursing home she was living in or any other identifying information. But we learned that if you want to cross the bodies across state lines, you need the deceased's social security number, not yours. Or anyone else, or any other identifying information. Now, to be fair, there were other factors at play that I'm not going to go into, but we had to search for her social security number, and that was hard. So that's just an example of where things can get very complicated after death, both financially and statistically, or not statistically, but just as far as dealing with everything. Um, so I'm not saying that that necessarily should be changed, but... Heads up, if you have to do that, be ready for that. But yeah, and we also were, I mean, we were shocked at the price by the end of it. Like, genuinely surprised. So I I bring up all that to say that, full stop, this is a a channel made by an adorable woman uh, who is extremely passionate about her job and definitely deserves your support. Oh, yeah. Um, And I would say... The way that she covers historical events is in a way that makes them more fun than they probably should be. Yeah. Which is just great. Uh, This in particular is my favorite example of that because she's dealing with the story of the Essex, which was a whaling vessel that inspired, directly inspired the story of Moby Dick. And (laughs) she brings up several times in the video that you know she's she's alluding to the ultimate uh turning point of cannibalism so basically yeah it's she tells the as you said she tells the true story of Moby Dick what really happened and how as she says multiple times it's far worse which i couldn't i didn't believe it granted i've not read moby dick but 
I couldn't believe how much worse it could be, but it showed me how much worse it could be. But I couldn't help but laughing the entire time because she made it enjoy. She made this very tragic thing very enjoyable to watch. Yeah, she she represents uh, all the crew. She she starts out actually by explaining the history of Nantucket, which is in Canada. That is the starting point of this particular story. The whaling ship Essex starts from there. They take several month journey down around South America to get over to the Pacific Ocean. And once they're there, they get hit by a sperm whale that is angry, supposedly... For the record, Nantucket is not in Canada. Where's it at? It's in Massachusetts. It's It's in Massachusetts? It's an island off the coast of Massachusetts. Oh, so I was looking at that map wrong. That must have been just below Maine over there where, where she had on the map. Yeah. And okay. It, and to be fair, I just Googled it because I'm like, not to make you feel bad, but I was like, I don't think that sounds right. So I Googled it and it's a, it's a small island off the coast of Massachusetts. Okay. All right. That changes things a little bit. But yeah, we, you start out there and what she does with the visuals is it's primarily like a slideshow, but a little wackier because all the people that were on this ship, all the men on this ship are represented by little like Playmobil heads. <laughs> yeah. And they were also adorable, even though what happened? Well, you'll get to it. So apparently the ship goes down around. What do they're, they call they're it? Going, the, so they're going up. They've gone up around South America and they're going to the. Um, what islands? were those They're called? around the Society Islands. Yeah. And they're trying to get to Easter Island at some point so after their ship is is destroyed by a whale. They're going from the... Well, they never wanted to go to the Society Islands. No, they, they didn't. Were. I forget. It, they, they weren't actually aiming for an island. They were always going to stay on the ship until it sunk. And then well, they yeah. were trying to aim for islands to save themselves yeah, from wanted starvation. Wanted the, they wanted to go to the Galapagos because they knew it was friendly. Oh, they, that's it. They went to Galapagos and got all the turtles, brought them on the ship... And yeah. then they got hit by the whale. And then they're like, "Well, let's go back there because we know it'll be okay." But they were way, of, they were, they were very far away from that. Yeah, extremely so. Basically, they went to another island too, and basically, there were two islands where they annihilated the native species—a single boat, like annihilated a specific native species. One was of birds, on some tiny island they visited. That was yeah, they killed all the birds and ate them. Anything yeah. else, the only the birds could eat, but they ate all the birds. Um, so yeah, basically they killed, they ate multiple species into extinction. And the only reason why this was possible was because it was on a very small island. Yeah, with a very self-contained ecosystem. Yeah, otherwise this wouldn't have been possible. So once their, their ship is hit by a disgruntled whale, um, supposedly they think because the whale is getting revenge for the other 12 whales that they killed earlier, but actually may have been because of the repairs they were making to their ship that was, you know, sonically disturbing the whale in that vicinity. Mm. So the whale hit the boat twice, destroyed the boat, sunk it, and so the rest of the crew had to get into the other um, whaling boat, which does have a, a sail. You don't necessarily notice that when you watch the video but all these boats had sails on them yeah. they're not rowboats entirely and they're not little escape vessels mm-hmm. but they basically it's like you were at as she put it they were at the mercy of the wind yes there, there was it was not easy to steer these things yeah 
Uh, so there's, what was it, like seven people in each of the three boats? There were seven people in each of the three boats. They each had two boxes of crackers. Hard tack, yeah. Yes, basically n- the grossest crackers you could imagine. Um, what was it like? It's it's like compressed flour and salt. Nasty stuff. <laughs> um, then they had, they each had like two turtles. Two turtles that they could kill and eat for meat when needed. And there was, did they have anything else? Oh, fresh water. They each had a limited amount of fresh water. Yeah. That they re- they thought, they predicted it would take them three months to get to the Galapagos. I don't think it was that long. Was it a m- I think it was le- it was three weeks. Okay, more like. Yeah, they wouldn't have lasted on three months, but I thought it was it was three weeks, and they basically had to eat very small amounts of everything, and really make the food last. But because they had been constantly, because they really didn't know, they didn't have any control over where they were going, they were constantly veered off course. So this became a much, 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 much longer expedition. Yeah, they were trying to get to Easter Island and then maybe try swing themselves back over to South America. But the ship started going in the completely opposite direction, which dragged out their voyage longer. One of the leaders of one of the boats ended up not monitoring the rations well. And then uh, once they did come by one particular island, and I think that's the one they, they removed a lot of the animals from, but not entirely... Yeah. Uh, three guys decided to stay behind. Yeah. And ironically, we later learn they got saved like within a week. If right. That. So they were fine. They were fine long ago. Basically, of the three boats, most of them died. And one whole of the three, one whole boat of those three vessels, three life, sa- life rafts, basically veered completely off course and wasn't seen for a long time. And then it was found beached up on a shore somewhere and they were long dead. On yeah. There. Um, the other two, and this is where the cannibalism was alluded to, they ate most of the people on those boats. Like, and for some weird reason, the black people were eaten first for some yeah, reason. Yeah, I think it's a combination of they didn't give the black sea, uh, sailors equal rations. And then because they died first due to that. Mm they decided to go ahead and eat the, the black sailors first once they ran out of their own rations. Yeah. And this is, she wanted to emphasize, though, that, like, because Nantucket was, like, a Quaker island, they wanted to, their, their whole thing was that they were treating the black whalers equally. They were paying them equally. It's actually why there were more black whalers on Nantucket than anywhere else was because they got paid equally. They got treated hard, worse, I'm sure. And she brings that up, that they were obviously treated way worse, especially on the boats. But that was one of the few places in the world where if you were a black whaler, you were guaranteed to get paid the same amount. Yeah, because they and were Quaker and they were like, they were, that was their, that was the Quaker way. And it was like after the story of the Essex was spread around, they had to improve upon their image by doing more things to better the black community around there? Because basically they, they, so Quakers were the only group in this era outside of abolitionists, which, but wasn't really a big thing at the time. Um, I'm assuming, I believe this was like, what, 1810? Yeah. Yeah. So really the Quakers were the, one of the only groups that genuinely out of a fear for God treated 
black people and other minorities equally, but not only in certain ways. Let's be very clear. Um, basically, in pay. And I think there must have been a few other ways, but I do not know what they are. But one of the main things was pay. So if there was a, uh, a Quaker outpost, not a Quaker outpost, but like a place that was mainly run by Quakers, which there weren't many, um, you would find black people frequent them slightly more often because they understood, oh, I can get paid the same amount at least. You know, that, that's a benefit that I can't afford to miss. But saying all that about the actual story, the uh, video production style in this case, uh, different than the other stuff we've watched, is more so like a typical YouTube video where you've got someone sitting in front of a camera and switching over to footage and pictures and video clips and whatnot. She does cut to some footage of herself actually walking around Nantucket. Yeah, which was cool. Was, it made me want to visit Nantucket. It seemed nice. And then she had some footage of herself looking at a museum in um, Hawaii, too. Yeah. She, she's, like, really been traveling. And I, I think she's the sort that really appeals <clears throat> to um, darker sensibilities, but the sort where you, you try to have fun with it to not feel as bad afterwards. Yeah. Especially with stories that are as old as this one is. Mm -hmm. uh, she tries to make disturbing history fun for all viewers. <laughs> fun for the whole family. And she's very good at it. I'd, I'd actually be interested in buying her book, which is... Uh, let me look this up. There, she has a, an interesting book title. Yes, uh, her name is Caitlin Doherty, and her book was Will My Cat Eat My Eyeballs? <laughs> So yeah, I would uh, absolutely recommend this video, especially. It's it's probably the best one she's made, aside from the one on Lake Superior where that tanker ship sunk in the 1970s. All right. And then the rest of her channel I would recommend, although, as I said, it's not entirely historical stuff. It's mostly on the practicality and kind of helping to normalize the discussion of death and cremation and dealing with um, the funeral industry. Still great video, though. The fourth short we looked at was from Short of the Week. We had um, four we checked out from there. And this one was, Do You See What I See? This one was, of the shorts we watched, this one was the most disturbing to me, without a doubt. It was good, it was well done, but it was the most, it was sad, it was, it was sad and disturbing, to put it bluntly. I enjoyed it, but it was, yeah, sad and disturbing. And the reason being is that it's a, a short, personal look into the uh, sequestered life of a former artist, um, well, a former like contracted artist. He yeah. was doing more personal stuff. A very uh, talented contracted artist. He did a lot of the what poster designs and um, cover designs, book covers, book covers. Yes, for a ton of major groups. Like Sesame the, Street was the big one. Sesame Street was the big one, but he also looked like I thought I saw some Don Bluth stuff in there that he did. 
Might have done, yeah. Um, and I thought he did a few things with Nickelodeon and Disney, too. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. like, he really, it was really something else. Like, he really knew how to recreate those styles incredibly well. But what what was it that he, he got, like, spray-painted at one point? He was using spray paint, and what he said is that it, it messed with his nervous system. Because there was cadmium in it. Yeah, it had cadmium in it. Um, and then the documentary shows what it actually does is cadmium can potentially uh, either enhance the effects or give you schizophrenia. And it, it the documentary proceeds to show us that he believes that he has become a spiritual individual, that he is uh, meditating every morning, tapping into the spirits of his dead parents and his father. He believes almost any and all conspiracy theories. Without without a shred, without even a second thought, he instantly believes the conspiracy theories. So. Yeah, he believes 9-11 was an inside job, including the, the plane that... Um, what it did it hit? I've never got that straight. Did it actually hit the Pentagon? It did. Okay, so yeah, he believes that was fake. He believes Sandy Hook was fake. Yeah. Um, but and this was filmed recently. This was in the middle of the pandemic when this was being filmed. Yeah, and what's really upsetting about it is not just you see the fall of a quite a talented artist, but you see the art that he makes now, and it just looks so upsetting and disturbed. And bad and weird. Yeah, it, it has that same colorfulness that his earlier work did, but no, that was all like actual paintings, I think. Yeah, this, this is Photoshop. This is photo bashing. Yeah. And he just put together these this imagery that it it didn't make sense half the time. And if and when it did, it was really not pleasant to look at. Yeah. And you we're were, you were watching a man going. You basically this documentary. It's it's not how long was it? Twelve minutes. Twelve minutes. Yeah. You're watching a man like lose his mind. Right. And I should say that you know disturbing art in and of itself is not is not wrong even oh, no. even I, to to my sensibilities. I'll be clear, you, Jonathan. You know me. There's some yeah. very disturbing art that I thoroughly enjoyed. What was it? Uh, so Ralph that, Steadman. Is, who's uh, who's that guy that I showed you paintings of? Oh, I gotta... yeah, that even, that was, I loved that stuff. Um, I know who you're talking about. They call, he was like the Polish version of Geiger, right? Yes. Um, but I also love, like, I love the artwork of Francis Bacon as well, who really does this very fascinating, weird, freaky work. Although he also had a bit of a sad, depressing life towards the end, but that's a whole other thing. But, like, I am, to oh, and I love the. There we go. Uh, Zadislaw Bekzinski. Oh yeah, Zadislaw Be Bekzinski. And then also, I love uh, Gustav Klimpf. I think that's his name. Um, he does this very strange, weird outsider art with all this freaky imagery, statues doing weird things, these weird monsters. So I'm all down with that. What was depressing and weird about this work is it wasn't very creative, but it was... It's still. What would you mean by that? Like he was using other images, and but not in a not in a collage way. He was just like tic tacking different like things of people and symbols on top of one another, and there was well, just... he's building scenes. Yes, he is building, he's building scenes, and he's building scenes specifically of the conspiracy theories. Yes, and I guess that's 
part of it is that it's just like you watch this stuff that is so doesn't make sense. You know, know what? No, I'm going to correct it. It'd be one thing if this was just very weird art on the internet. It's the fact that you, it's the fact that you look at it and it's like, no, this is what's in his head and what he believes. Right. That's what's disturbing about it. Yeah. So uh, that's more than nitty gritty, and because of that, the art takes on a form that is far worse. It's like propaganda of the of his own mind, mm-hmm. and that's because as fascinating as propaganda artwork can be, I have a book of propaganda artwork. It is fascinating work, but there is a disturbing element to propaganda artwork that's that that's very unsettling because it's almost too nice. But this stuff wasn't nice. It was very. It was still very creative and weird and disturbing to look at. But it's because he believed it, made it this propaganda that just really irked me in the wrong way. Mm-hmm. It also didn't help that at the very end, in just text, it says, four months later, he died of cancer, which tells you he basically ignored treatment or something. Yeah, so you, you would that's have what to I get from that. Un, un, unless... When he had been going to doctors, no one caught anything. Like, it, like it's either. Do you he think he was the type of guy who went to doctors, though? Not at this point. Yeah. I don't know how long ago it said that he uh, contracted the cadmium poisoning when that event happened. But it had to. It, I'm going to guess it had to have been uh, f- six years ago at the least, maybe longer. And he was talking to pe- the the cameraman like pretty normal, like co- coherently too. Yeah. And who the the director who was behind the camera was you know engaging with his conspiratorial mind. He, he when you're a documentarian, you don't trying to interview someone that strange. You don't want to antagonize them, and you don't want to come in with any biases. You you almost want to engage with them. Uh, with their you want to do that without agreeing with them, which is tricky. It's hard. Yeah. That's true. You don't want to you don't want to agree with them. You don't want to uh, build up and support them, I suppose. Yeah. But you want you want to get their full story out. So you do want to engage with them just the right amount. Yeah, it's it's a balancing act and yeah. So I'm guessing that if they hadn't caught any cancer when he had been seeing doctors then he didn't know and no one else knew and it just came upon him at some point. Yeah. And then he died in hospice four months later. And that was that. So would we recommend this particular uh, short? I would, but you... I don't want to say you need to know what you're getting into, but... I kind of think that's the point. Yeah, that is the point. Okay. Is that you don't really want to know what you're getting into. Because I, I, I looked at all of these these shorts from Short of the Week by just their title and their log line. Okay. So here's what I'd say. I absolutely would, but anyone who walks away saying they hated it or didn't weren't into it, I don't even try to defend it. I don't try to tell them. Otherwise, I'm like, yeah, I understand why, you're that, why that might upset you. And that's yeah. all I'd say. But yes, I would recommend it. And I think I would, too. Um, it's not easy for me to recommend odd subjects like this, but it seems like something that you you need to take a glimpse at to get the other perspective. Uh, even if he had spe- a specific mental illness that was contributing to his belief system, 
it's interesting to have some idea of why people might believe the things they do. Yeah. Coming around to short number five was, I'm going to say this was pronounced aleatoric, which uh, is a term that means something is characterized by chance or indeterminate elements. And it apparently is specifically related to music. Didn't know that at all. So as I understand it, this particular short uh, was only eight, it was only eight minutes long. It was the shortest we saw. And it's supposed to be about two individuals who had been going to college for uh, musical composition. Well, one of the guys that we later learned in an outside interview, not related to this, one of them went to chem, like studied chemistry, like unrelated. He taught himself music, uh, music theory and music composition. Okay. From what I understand. Um, And I didn't catch the names of the two guys. One of them, I'm going to say early on, in maybe like 1999 or slightly earlier than that, had been collecting ephemera of sounds that he thought were unique. And so he would record them on VHS. It was probably even earlier in the 90s. Started recording sounds on VHS, just just short little snippets, and then recording them on, on tape as well and keeping these large collections of sound bites. And then when he met this other fella who had been doing kind of the same thing, they teamed up together to compose albums of music that made are... made like six albums. Made six albums in, over the course of a decade. And they, they called themselves The Books. And the music is a mixture of original performances on actual instruments recorded in a studio with these samples and sound bites of sound effects and other bits of music or singing that accompanies it into a kind of a sonic soup. Mm-hmm. And uh, listening to two of the songs that they did, I would say it is in the same subcategory that you could put the art of noise into, although the art of noise was more structured they used sound samples in their music as just another instrument. Um, so they would, they would get voice samplings, they would get samplings of uh, other music and put it on the, you know, the synthesizer to the play at different pitches. And then they would, they would fill it out with certain bits of acapella on top of their hip-hop backbeats. And then there's a couple of more recent artists that are, I don't, I don't remember if they're technically vaporwave because they're not that slow droning sound. It's more, um, it's more fast paced than that. But there's a couple of artists called Macross eighty two ninety nine and Saint Pepsi. They do very similar stuff. They get sound samples from Japanese city pop and eighties disco music. They take snippets and put like repeat them over and over like their their favorite parts. Or they get different pieces and, you know, chop them up. And then they uh, either speed them up or slow them down so it's not just the natural sampling. And then they put um, either a dance trance or a hip-hop beat under that. And it makes for some wonderfully relaxing and interesting stuff that is 
on another level than the original music. Because the original music they're sampling is great stuff on its own, but this does make something new and transformative out of it. And so I would say that the books is more raw than either of those two musicians and groups. But I don't entirely know what to make of it other than that. It's not necessarily something I would listen to. So here's my thing on the documentary. It's really well shot. And it's yeah. fascinating. But this is actually one of the few cases of the shorts where I actually thought it could have been longer. I was left not wondering in like a, oh, I, that's so amazing. I, I have a sense of wonder. I was left wondering as like, wait, I feel like I'm missing a lot of information. Yeah, that I did feel that too. I felt like we could have gotten a... This could have been 30 minutes long and it would have been much better. Yes. I think we should have seen a bit more of the like early descriptions of how they met mm -hmm. and some more descriptions, like e examples of... what they of, made. Yeah. Not and just what they kind of were doing with this collection. I think you could have gotten some like some live examples or, or elements showing like here's this guy watching something on television, hearing a, hearing a sound, or I guess he would have been recording television mm -hmm. because you can't like, oh, can I rewind that? No, you would have had to pre-record it, then listen to it. And if there's something interesting, you record it on a separate machine. Yeah. So it would have been nice to see a, a specific example of something he snipped from something else. Yeah. Uh, the, whole, the whole short was done in a split screen set up. Which was cool. I, like, I thought it worked. It just, like, that should have just been like a segment of the documentary. And then, like, for the rest of it, they do, they, they kind of, I don't want to say normalize it, but they don't do total split screen. I'll disagree in that I think it could have worked better if they had changed it up to be uh, top and bottom sometimes and if the mm. split screen had a direct correlation at any given moment. That actually, that's a good idea. Like if it, because it only had a direct correlation once. At least it, it felt like it. And it was I, cool when it happened. I yeah. liked it. Um, but you're right. If they had done side to side and top to bottom and back and forth in certain ways, that would have been cool. It's just it leaving it static like that. Even though they changed the images and they moved in different ways or in certain frame, they changed the framing. Um, it's still just, it got a little, I guess, redundant a little bit. Possibly. Uh, there are great examples of documentaries that are only five or six minutes long, uh, much like this, that cover similar topics. There's one on a guy that has one of the only la like last working text animation systems meant for television studios in the 80s. Oh, wow. Uh, it's this. It's like a special effects machine done with analog video technology. So it's this giant computer bank box. Oh my god! And it. Uh, he had picked it up from an old studio and brought it to his house, and so he just toys with the thing every day. Wow, that's really cool. Um, I forget the the name of the video, but um, but it makes it, it animates text. Yeah, it it creates text it animates logos flying in and flying out for that's like all it does yeah uh, but it, it has transitions i think between different video feeds and it can do um like uh audio simulation imagery where it's like vector graphics so it's all of the above um meant as a an all-in-one system for television studios but there had only been three originally and this is one of the is this is the only one that still functions huh 
That's fantastic. I'm glad it still exists. Would I recommend this particular short? It, I think my particular issue was I couldn't quite make out everything I was seeing and hearing in the doc. I think I'd need to look at it again to get a better idea. I think this is the sort of documentary that it helps to follow up with interviews if they exist with the same people yeah. and follow it up with actually listening to the music, which will similarly relate to the, the uh, one of the other two full-length docs we watched. It, it would help to supplement it with some of the actual musical material to get a full perspective. But I would recommend it uh, so long as you do those two things. Build, build upon what this eight-minute doc is, uh, is presenting to you. I'm a little less inclined to recommend it. I don't think it was bad. I just think if you're going to watch it, like if I was watching it, if I stumbled upon it on my own and I watched it, I would have thought, okay, so he collected audio samples. And here's the here's the main problem with the documentary. It it If I wasn't with you, I wouldn't have looked further into it. Like I don't think I would have looked further in. I would just would have been like, okay, they were collecting audio and they did stuff with it. Yeah, kind of I think well. it assumes you know who they are. It doesn't do a good Which job really explaining who they are. It really should not assume that. The only What made me look into it is when you found one of their songs on YouTube, you played it, and then I looked them up. And that's... So, like, even if they had just included, like, a, a, a stronger sample of the, one of their songs, well, that it, would it's a It's one of their singles. It's uh, what the lemon is pink. Or, yeah, the uh, color the of title. lemonade is pink. Or, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's the song that you hear in the dock itself. But it's in the background. It's in the background. You don't realize it. You don't notice it. Mm-hmm. You think it's a piece of royalty-free sampled music for yeah. all you know. Which I'm sure that's how they make a lot of their money. Well, they could. Yeah. I'm not sure. But I, I did enjoy it. I just am I'm like, I'll let that one be a happy, a, a nice surprise for people if they like it rather than me. Because when I imagine myself recommending something, I'm like really like trying to get them to watch it. And I'm a little less inclined for this one. So we come now to the two final feature documentaries that we covered this marathon. And because I I wanted to see as many shorts as we did and due to other timing constraints... Uh, we had to skip two, the other two documentaries we would have seen, which were Hoop Dreams, and granted that's a three-hour documentary, uh, but I definitely want to make sure we see it either the next time or at least on our own. I know I will yeah. make a point of it because it's, I believe it's on HBO Max. Yeah, and I've heard it's excellent. Um, and then the other one was The Lovers and the Despot, which would have related to a degree to what we saw in the, Into the Inferno. So maybe next time we'll save that for when we do uh, another round of documentaries in the distant future. Because mm-hmm. I've been fascinated about that particular story. Um, I, I know I've seen a shorter documentary about it. I forget who did it. But it's essentially the North Korean leader Kim Jong-il, who it, uh, was the current leader's father in the 70s, was a big fan of American cinema. I would say cinema in general. He did, a, he did he like, considers himself a movie buff. Yes, wor- world cinema. But he um, wanted to have his own movie studio built up with a high quality director. But he, th- you know, there's 
I don't even know if there are art schools in North Korea. There I don't know how much art schools, film I schools can't imagine there's much like personal it. expression to even cultivate art it would in be, the country. It would take it there were there are not the resources for it to find anybody who could do what he needed to have done. Yeah. So he uh kidnapped a director from South Korea and a and his wife. And his wife who was also an actress. Mm. And they kept them in um uh, isolation in uh, cells for a certain amount of time. I don't know if it was a full year or several months, but once they, he brought them back out, he uh, cultivated a certain uh, friendship with them to try and lull them into working with him to, you know, to make himself not look as menacing as he could have been to them. He trying his best yeah. to convince them to work with him willingly rather than force them. They realized they really didn't have a choice, and they, they did. And they made several films for Kim Jong-il, but there's one in particular that stands above the rest, and it's one that can actually be seen. I don't know if the others can be. Um, and it, it, it does make a prominent... It is prominently shown in that documentary, because uh, it's a giant monster film. Mm-hmm. And apparently it's pretty good. It's unironically genuinely good because it's made by a good director under duress. Yes. Uh, as, as disturbing as that is. So we will save that for next time. So the, the feature film that we started with today was one I picked out specifically because I wanted a more raw documentary. Uh, something that was shot in the moment across a certain period of time and explored the personal lives of people just going about their business in their particular field of interest or their hobbies or whatnot, following them around. And so we, uh, we ended up seeing Dig, D-I-G with an exclamation point. Mm-hmm. And I got to say right off the gate, because I had only seen one of these documentaries, but out of all the documentaries that we watched, this was my favorite, without a doubt in my mind. It was It was funny. It was wacky. It was crazy. It was inspiring. It was sad. It was all of that. And it was very well shot, even though it was basically a bunch of found footage cobbled together. It was so well edited. Well, it's not found. Well, no, it's not found. It was all of of the moment. It was all of the moment, but in the sense that like... There's other footage thrown in there, though. But in the sense that like they just have this camera and they're just walking with it. It's not very professionally shot. No, and that that's what really impressed me is that because the characters are so fascinating, you it doesn't matter if you're getting nice-looking shots or not. It that's not the point. Yeah. And this is probably the first documentary I've seen in recent years other than when I was at SCAD that I felt like this entirely works. I don't need aesthetically pleasing shots to enjoy this story. Yeah. And very few documentaries can pull that off, and this was absolutely one of them. Um, so it was basically about two bands, uh, two sort of... 60s revivalist bands that were... Big in tr- the 90s after Nirvana. Yeah. Basically. Uh, and they, they compared themselves a bit to Green Day, which does have a similar vibe to them, but they, they go all in on, at least early on, yeah. Uh, one more than the other. They go all in on the the sixties aesthetic, yeah. And the and the, a little grunge, a grunge. There was a grunginess to it. There is a grunginess to it. You could relate them to the Beatles 
a little bit of Pink Floyd. Oasis. I felt Oasis. Yeah. They less stylish than Oasis, or less put together, I should say, than Oasis. Mm-hmm. But the thing. Oh, let's. The oh, two yeah. band names are the. Um, so one the was the Brian Jonestown Massacre, yes. which is referencing that cult that everyone drank the Kool Aid and and committed suicide. And the um, the Dandy Warhols. Yes, which, which was, is uh, Andy it, Warhol reference. And here's the thing. Even if this isn't your type of music, you you hear their songs. Admittedly, only parts of them, and you hear like the songs that they think are going to be hits. They're good. Like, and it, and even again, if you don't like, if it's not your type of music, you can see them being like you can imagine hearing these songs on the radio. Mm-hmm. Like they're at that level, which is what's incredible. Yeah. But for whatever reason or another, they never quite quite made it now let's be clear what makes this so they never they never quite fully 100 percent break out in america neither of them neither of them do the dandy warhols actually do quite well over time they do quite well internationally specifically in europe they actually do very well in england for a while Mm -hmm. like they become like I, i bet you if we went to england and said do you listen to the dandy warhols they would at least know who they are yes um which bands did at the time, actually. Sometimes if they weren't hits in America, they'd fly over to London or another country, see if they could do any better. And they did. And they did very well in Europe and more specifically England. You can tell, too, that uh, the Brian Jonestown Massacre, uh, they uh, Anton Newcomb, the yes. lead singer of that one, who is a big focus of the entire documentary. Who, by the way, is basically, they basically are saying he is a musical genius and I am inclined to agree that he might be. Mm-hmm. Uh, he intentionally is singing with a British accent, at yes. least as much as a British singer would sing with one. It does have that same sound you get out of... Um, who's the, the main guy that founded Pink Floyd? What's his name? Oh. I thought it was Waters, but I forget the first name. Oh, no. Rod! no, my God. Roger Waters. Roger Waters. There you go. Yeah, he has a Roger Waters sound in, in intentionally when he's singing into the into the mic. It, I I don't know if he did it the whole time, but he did it for certain songs. He did it for a lot of the time. But what made it fascinating is even though neither of them broke out in America, one was more successful than the other. And you just watch the dichotomy of this happening where the more one band's gaining all the success and the other band is floundering. And what they kind of go into is they, I don't want to say they blame the leads. So it's, for the record, Dandy Warhol is doing better, as I said, and um, Brian Jonestown Massacre is not nearly doing as well. Yeah. They popped at one point in Tokyo, basically, where they really had a taste of success. Mm -hmm. But then that was really the only time that they had. Yeah. It's Anton Newcomb, who's this uh, super... Apparently he's very infamous now. Yeah hyper creative self-centered and egotistical very arrogant to everyone else around him extremely it's like extremely difficult to work with yeah if if you're not into what i'm doing and you're not staying out of my way then screw you yeah and i will tell you as such also in case it doesn't help because it doesn't help anything does a lot of drugs and when i say drugs i don't mean weed i mean heroin yeah this film made it very clear to me why 
bands like this look the way they do because they're the type of people who will spend all of their money wherever they must get it from. And I don't know where entirely they get it from, but they will either spend it on really decent guitar amps and keyboards and bass guitars and drums. Anything music related. Or they'll spend it on heroin and booze. They won't spend it on food. They won't spend it on on soap. They won't spend it on... Some of them will spend it on a nice house, maybe. But even then, they don't do that. And if they do spend it on a nice house, they won't buy furniture. They'll they'll just... They'll live in... They'll sleep on a mattress. They'll squat on the floor. Well, that was the thing. They, they, They... There was a bit where the lead singer of Brian Jonestown Massacre turned a rental house of his into a studio the studio part was very nice, but the rest of it was like a horrifying. Yeah. Yeah. And then it also made it very clear to me why these guys are so skinny. Yeah. It's because they're not eating. No. And they're and all the heroin is sucking all of the the fat out of them. Yeah, it wasn't good. It was not good. But man, was it a good documentary. Like I can't recommend this enough. And it is available pretty easily. Uh, so I, I strongly recommend it. Because here's the thing, as weird as it sounds, they're all likable, too. Yes. Yes, he's an asshole, but he's likable in a weird way. And what's unbelievable is he's still alive. Well, that was the thing. So then... He we, didn't die in the early 2000s. We, I kind of assumed he died or something horrible happened to him. Right. We then see an, a video uh, with Anthony Bourdain, may he rest in peace does a segment on this guy in his show Parts Unknown. And this guy, instead of... So he still makes his music, but he moved to Germany. Every day. He he moved to Germany and he makes music every freaking day. Every day and cooks. And And he does both at the same time. (laughs) When Anton Newcomb, when he cooks, it's like a real-life version of How to Basic. It is. It really is. Like, I literally was laughing so hard when I saw him mashing the potatoes. Because he's doing it on the floor. He was doing them on the floor. The mashed potatoes were in a bowl, obviously. But he's doing them on the floor with one of the... What do you call that thing? Um, it's like a whisk beater? It's this It's this automatic whisk. And he is stabbing the potatoes with this whisk very viciously. Yeah. <laughs> and here's the thing. He made what looked like a really good meal. I can't lie. Like, it looked good. Yeah. He, a- Anthony was literally sitting in his in his house having Anton cook for him yeah. and, the, and the rest of his family. And like what I, I, I'm drawing some conclusion here, but it sounds like, cause the documentary ends where he finds out he has a, he has a son. Yeah. And I base the, the line I'm drawing is that cause it ends, he got arrested at the end of the documentary basically. Cause he literally at a concert. Oh yeah, that's the other thing. Anton was known. People would go to these concerts with Anton to see fights happen. Like yeah, because either he was going to fight with one of his bandmates or somebody in the audience who was doing something he didn't like was going to piss him off. Yeah. Or the third option was you were going to get an amazing concert. But either way, they were down for it. So he got arrested because he on stage, he's on stage. There's, they're all standing in the audience. He kicks the guy in the face hard, knocks him on the floor. Right. Hard. Yeah. And it's considered assault. It's like considered like assault with a deadly weapon, right? Cuz Cuz it's not your hand, it's a it's your it's your foot. It's your foot with a pretty powerful boot on there. Yeah. 
kicked him hard, gets arrested. But the conclusion I'm drawing is that basically, you know, he found out he had a son. I think we in that documentary, we witnessed rock bottom and he decided to at least stop doing drugs for his kid because I'm assuming he's not doing drugs anymore. I hope. He's yeah, he, well. He looks like he's got at least the remnants of it. His, his, but he's uh, put on more weight. He looks healthier. He's put on more weight. He, he does look healthier. His, his hair is graying in weird spots because I don't think he's dying his, his, no, the top of his hair, no. but his eyebrows are gray, nearly white. He has white mutton chops. He's 50 and he looks like he could be almost 60. Yeah. It's, in, it's but a, only in certain parts of his body. It's weird. Like he ha- parts of him looked young and then parts of him looked older. So like you can tell he he's age he, he yeah, it affected him, obviously. He's apparently versed enough in all kinds of instruments. He played the sitar. Well, he, he played, claimed uh, he could play over fifty instruments, right? Or something yeah. crazy, right? That he he plays drums himself, he plays the keyboard, the guitar, the bass. Uh, woodwind instruments. He just takes to it. I think I genuinely think he's he probably is a savant. He probably can just take the instrument and start under. He just starts playing it easily. Like I'd, he, I'd imagine so. He compared himself to oh, to Wolfgang Amadeus Wolfgang Mozart, mm-hmm. and it's like you know what that makes sense because he probably because he was so good with these instruments, he he didn't appreciate the talent he had. Yeah, I I, I always got to wonder about. Uh, musicians who are that overwhelmingly talented uh, were just given to them. They didn't have to work for it. Wanting to make something of themselves, although he he wanted to be, uh, he wanted to start a musical revolution all on his own alongside other bands that were doing something similar. That's why these two bands met up and and were still friends. Friends is a a word. Well, they they were, were 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 you could call them comrades if you want. I don't know what the proper term would be. But they were, they were tightly knit in their way. Yeah. Maybe reluctant friends that respected each other to a a degree. Oh, you could tell the other guy, what was the lead guy of the other bands? Uh, Courtney Taylor Taylor was his name. He, you could tell he respected Anthony a lot. He was jealous. He openly admitted he was jealous. Yeah. Yeah, because he said he said Anthony was always musically Anthony was like three years ahead of him mm-hmm. consistently like he'd make something and Anthony here was the messed up thing Anthony couldn't even pretend to be impressed by Courtney's music like Courtney would play it and he'd be like oh yeah like you could tell he was but he was mad that Courtney was becoming successful mm-hmm. managing to get a record deal managing to get some impressive looking music videos made Selling out concerts in Europe. Yeah. And here's the thing. Anthony was offered all of those things. He was just so self-destructive that he destroyed every chance he got. He got multiple chances because everyone acknowledged that he was good. He was just incredibly difficult to work with. And that, yeah, that's what I was getting to is I don't know why you have to be that destructive about it. Why, why, are, why do you have to go into drugs to make music? You don't. Why do you have to get into that end of the culture about it. I mean, even if it's already full of it and you're now entering into it, you don't have to touch any of that shit. We've had a little bit of this discussion before. I'm, obviously, you don't have to and many shouldn't, but so many do. It's crazy. Like even, like, even musicians you and I both love, like ones who aren't about the drug lifestyle, you ask them, like, oh, yeah, of course I did. It's like, it's almost, it's so shocking how many of them did. Like, bare minimum pot, oh, they all did. So, Jonathan, 
Do you recommend this movie? Yes, I do. Uh, I actually wasn't sure if I would, but I absolutely 100% recommend this. Um, I am not well-versed in any form of music, but I am open to all kinds except for country mm. uh, and death metal. I have There's no way I can possibly enjoy death metal because there's no uh, melody to it. Yeah, it's hard. I think just about anything that I enjoy has to have a melody or has to have some kind of some kind of hummable element to it. Yeah. Country, I'm limited, but I can't like I like Johnny Cash. I can respect him. He's very talented. Um I also like um there's another country older, much older country musician who's long dead that I respect as well. Anyways. And most of my musical exploration originally came from stuff that was in soundtracks mm. until I started just sifting through music catalogs or websites that I could download MP3s from. You know, let's, let's sift through some interesting things here or let's do some research mm -hmm. into who was popular in different decades. And I've discovered a handful of things along the way, but music from my own childhood era, which this was... I don't know enough about. Mm. Uh, I've only recently listened to some Green Day. I've never listened to Nirvana. I've never listened to... Um, oh, I love all that stuff. I, I am down with that. I've oh. never listened to much of either the major boy bands either. Oh, well, just a handful of songs. You're good on that. Um, like, I've really been getting into... And this is sort of the other side of it a little bit, but I've really been getting into Pearl Jam a lot. Like, I realize that they are, <clears throat> I don't want to say they're underappreciated. They were huge when they came out. They have, they have multiple hits, but they are, I've just realized how really good they are. Like, they really, their, their good stuff is so good. They were, they were the other big band while Nirvana was going on, basically. Yeah. They, they weren't as big as Nirvana was a cultural zeitgeist, but they were, I argue, they had songs that were just as good, but very, 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 very different. But I did have a fascination with this music, and I may try to track down what is considered both their best songs to get a, a comparison going. Mm -hmm. And that does remind me, if, if you want to check out a YouTube channel that covers the history of several bands, and uh, especially one-hit wonders, then you have to watch Todd in the Shadows. Uh, because he will give you a wonderful education into not only... Um, a lot of 90s music, but he'll cover the 80s and 70s as well, depending on the band. Um, I think he's got an equal amount of knowledge of, of at least those three decades and the decades he was born into in the 2000s. I don't think he's ever covered either of these, peop either of these bands, though. No. Which uh, it would be interesting if he eventually did. Yeah. So, yeah, I would recommend it. I might even recommend exploring the music like I will. Absolutely. And um, like we said, technically speaking, this is the only way to present this documentary. I think if you tried to track any of these guys down and do a, a modern documentary where you track them down and sit them down in a chair with interviews and then you intersplice it with this kind of of-the-time raw footage, I'd like it less. It wouldn't have worked. It wouldn't have worked. It, it, as you just said, it could have only worked this way. And because of that, it was my favorite documentary that we watched.
The last film of our weekend marathon was The Queen, produced in 1968. It's only an hour and five minutes long, and it is a behind-the-scenes look at the 1967 Miss All-American Camp Beauty pageant, which was a drag queen contest. Uh, and not just a contest, but it was kind of a... And I guess maybe this is how the contests always work, but it it's not just a one-by-one one thing. There's uh, choreographed dance numbers so that everyone's involved, and then it becomes a one-by-one one contest to pick the most beautiful drag queen. And it starts out before all of the the guys get there. They all meet up to dis, you know discuss the rules of the competition and what their expectations are. And then it moves into them going into rehearsals and then putting their looks together, getting their makeup figured out, getting their wigs figured out, getting their costumes figured out, because they had more than one. And significantly, this is a film made in, in 68. It's decades before Paris is Burning, which was the other touchstone documentary about drag queen culture uh, mm -hmm. made in 94, I believe, unless it was 84. Was it a documentary? Paris is Burning is a documentary. I didn't know that. I haven't seen it, so I didn't know. Um, I believe it was made in 94. Okay. So this, this film was made by Frank Simon. And I'm assuming they're the ones that is um, doing minor narration over it. I'm not aware if they are a drag queen themselves, but... Um, so this documentary is... Well, hey, I'm glad we saved this one for last because quite literally it'll be the perfect transition for what I believe will be our next series, which is LGBTQ films. So it's kind of perfect that our last documentary is That's in true, that world. That's true, it is, yeah. Um, so basically what we figured out is that this is the first film of any kind that depicts drag queens in any way. There are some earlier photos, but this is the first film of any kind. And it also is um, the first candid footage of homosexuals on, on film, as far as I'm aware. Yes. Um, there may be some earlier clips, I'm sure, but... But it's coming from a, a non-judgmental perspective. Yes, that's a better way to put it. It's, it is made by LGBTQ for LGBTQ. It's definitely one of the first of that. Um, and it's it's really an interesting documentary because it's like watching... I don't know how to describe it other than you're just seeing the... It's like seeing these friends get together to put on this really fantastic show because they it's, it's, it's something they have to do. It, at times it almost doesn't seem like they want to do it because they get angry at each other and they bicker, but it feels necessary for the cause. Like they have, they feel like they have to do this. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes it all the more powerful because they get catty with each other, especially at the end. Yeah. But like, it's still, you can tell it's still very important to them. I didn't pick up on if they were re regional winners of some other competitions and then they went to New York for this competition that was unclear i think that was maybe the case but who knows because how else would they have made it into this like and how, they say how, miss baltimore miss this miss that everyone's a miss yeah. of a place like what would what would be the circumstances upon which they were accepted to this yeah. how would you pull that off they didn't go into that they just were 
Um, but we saw this from like inception to end. Like they literally were, they all got together in a house and planned out how it was going to happen. Now it wasn't all the, the ones in the house weren't all the ladies that participate, weren't all the drag queens that participated. But yeah, they started out in, in uh, I'm guessing, like an office space first, and then they found a hotel to give everyone their own rooms. Well, I think it was the it was the guy's apartment that they all met at first. That's probably true, yeah. It looked like his, his place where he was living, and then they found a hotel, and it was basically the night of getting ready for the show, which, if you wanted to expand, the documentary could have been expanded, and it would have been. It's fine the length it is, but you could have tacked on another 20 minutes simply going from their house to when they go to the hotel. I'm sure there was all kinds of planning that happened Mm -hmm. and would have been interesting to see. So they could have added 20 minutes of that if they wanted to. So you're, you're getting um, a variety of personalities, both. I would say there are some introverts here, but there are plenty of extroverts. Oh yeah. You do get several candid conversations uh, of them talking to each other about, you know, we're all drag queens here, but do you, if you, could get a sex change for free, would you do it? Most of them said no. They said no. And that makes sense to me only because they they seem to be the the types of guys who are comfortable with their bodies as they are, Uh, many of whom were gay. Some of them even said they had husbands, which I don't know if we're talking legally married at the time. No, it couldn't have been legally. Um, It wouldn't have been. There was no state that was legalized that legalized it, but they there were soon a, would be. There soon would be one state uh, in the early seventies that did it. What Vermont? I think so, because there was a documentary I saw at the SCAD Film Festival about the the first couple that got married there. Oh wow, okay. So I think that's right. I knew it was. I knew Vermont was the first to do it, but I didn't know it was that early. That's impressive. Hmm. Wow. Wow. Um. But yet, I'm sure what it is, they had been in very long, committed relationships, and for in every way except legally, they were husband and husband. And uh, sound like some of them had been together for a very long time. Yes, I think the one guy said he had uh, a second husband. Well, that's a whole other thing. <laughs> but they seem they seem to be comfortable in the bodies as they are. They don't really want to become women, but. They, they they love presenting themselves as women under uh, performative circumstances because mm-hmm. they don't they don't necessarily dress that way out out and about in public. I don't even think they could have anywhere at the time. It, I, it might have depended on the neighborhood or the city. No, it wouldn't have worked in that era. But it, it doesn't look a whole lot different than it does today. Other than I think these days with drag queens, it's even more bombastic in the designs that you go for and even more flashy more colorful here it seemed it it wasn't as colorful the costumes had the similar aesthetic but there was a there was a more naturalistic approach to it we're Mm -hmm. trying to look like women of the day and and look as authentic as we can yeah or like they were they they a lot of them dressed like hollywood stars yes that would be the, the closest of that era, I would say, except they had bigger hair, but that was for a specifically aesthetic reason. Mm-hmm. They were Se- several beehives were going on. Was the last minute of it staged of the winner walking into that one place with the crown in hand? I don't know. Like they just sort of remember they walked and then they took a seat in like a phone booth or something. I couldn't tell what it was. Hmm. 
and then they had the crown in hand and it just went into a close-up of the crown. That felt a little, not that that ruins the movie. It, it just, could have it been. felt like, oh, I want you to do this. I want this to be the ending. And that's fine. Yeah, we should point out that an interesting fact was the film, uh, we, we see who the winner is. And you realize that after the runners-up start getting super bitchy about not winning and and pointing out how they feel that the winner just wasn't up to par, like like terribly just they're insulting her. They're being nasty, yeah. Um, I realized that the winner was the the primary person we saw walking into uh, New York at the beginning of the film. Was her. Uh, and then the same person coming out at the end. And it makes me think, did the the filmmakers know that this was going to be the winner? Or did they somehow capture footage of multiple drag queens coming into town and decide we're going to show the, the ultimate winner and splice that footage into the, the beginning? I think it was a combination of both. I think the finalists may have been a little bit predetermined, maybe. Because I found out the... Um, the hostess of the event, the winner was her protege. Ah, uh, that up. Yeah, that's what's written in the this Los Angeles Times article is that that was the the relationship there. Ah, uh, uh, the the um, the hostess's name who who had the microphone during the uh, festivities. I believe her name is Flawless Diamond. Mm. And as far as I can tell, she's still alive, or at least was still recently. Because mm-hmm. uh, yeah. we were honestly concerned that uh, many of these drag queens may have died in the AIDS epidemic uh, a decade or so later. And then combine that with the fact that a lot of time has passed since this movie. Yeah. That I'm sure some of them have died of natural causes, too. So we were like, are any of these people left? And thankfully, some of them are. But... It was the perfect movie to end on, truly. Like, I think it it was the perfect movie to end on. Like, it really, it's the perfect bridge onto the next subject mm-hmm. that we'll cover. Um, and it's a very, it's a good documentary. It really is. Uh, it's a little slow, but that's not the fault of it. It's You can tell they're really not, they're just like, we're going to just show this as almost as if it was just a historical event. Yeah. Uh, it's also fascinating to see how, Candid documentaries like this where we're just capturing the moments of, of, of an individual event, you know they're going to look better shot on film. It's just a, a fact of the technology. And so when you look at films like this of the earlier decades before camcorders, mm. they're always going to uh, be more visually presentable than something produced on a camcorder in the 90s. Uh, so to, you know, watching Dig and this... It's the same deal, but it's done in, under two totally different circumstances. And it gives you two different types of themes and presentations and different subject matter, different types of people, some more volatile than others. Because um, in Dig, you're watching several years pass and mm-hmm. relationships... Seven get, years, right? Yeah. And relationships get formed and broken time and time again. People uh, deteriorating further into madness... But here it's just a single week, I guess. I don't think it was more than a couple of days. Couldn't have been very long. Could not have been very long. But it's, uh, it was really something. Actually, this, the, my favorite sequence in that was when we're seeing the, a performance of one of the drag queens, but we don't know who it is. 
and we're seeing all of them get ready backstage and change and get everything all together. And it's just this great moment that really captures the energy of the of what they're trying to do. It really shows that it actually conveys this really powerful struggle in an interesting way for me because it shows that the show it can you know what it is it's the show must go on that's what it shows Mm -hmm. and it shows also the beauty in what they're doing in front of the stage and behind the stage and it's it's the best moment in the documentary i think that and when the two are talking in the hotel room and they're just being as you were talking earlier they're being very candid about their choices what they would want what they would what they see in their husbands and things like that. Those two moments are the best moments of the documentary. Yes. 100%. After that, it's, after that, it's kind of when they start fighting, but it's only because it's kind of like, it, it draws it. How can it not draw you in? How can that part not draw you in? Mm-hmm. But those two moments are the best moments in the documentary. And they're, they're something that you are hard pressed to find other documentaries capturing. Yeah. Yeah, I, I uh, especially back then. I would highly recommend this, and we we hadn't said it before, but ge- being gay men ourselves, yes, uh, this is a, a big reason why I wanted to pick this out because I I do like seeing trying to find depictions of homosexual or at least queer individuals from other decades and. Um, trying to find other directorial voices trying to capture those kinds of stories. I would highly recommend this to anyone who is within the LGBTQ spectrum and to anyone who is a advocate uh, and may not be the, uh, LGBTQ themselves. Oh yeah, I recommend it to anybody. It's, it's a good foundation for the community. To understand the early inception of it. Mm-hmm. I don't think you, it's you the s- first thing, but it's it's very early on. Right. You you see people these these men slash women. I, I don't know if it depends on whether they're in costume or not. Um, My understanding is many of them still identify as men. They just they do drag and it's part of their identity. Yeah, I I, I love seeing this from such a, a candid personal perspective, and and getting those anecdotes, those quotes. It should be on a criterion. I'm actually surprised it's not. Well, it was released by Kino Lorber, which oh, is that's like why. the Okay, never mind. Yeah. They're 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 uh, the other one. They're the other one that releases a lot of classic films and makes sure they're preserved. Yes, you're right. They Okay, I accept that then. That's good. They just they just released the movie. They don't always have this unique specialty things. Mhm. But that's a separate thing. <laughs> So, Cotton, out of the six documentary feature films that we watched, I guess I'd have to say I had two favorites that were tied. As weird as it may sound, it was Koyani Skatsi and Dig, um, for their own unique reasons. I do think Samsara, being uh, in a similar vein to Koyani Skatsi, as we did point out in our first part, Koyani Skatsi is a -a one-of-a-kind experience. It is a time capsule of 1982. It is a unique example of editing in a stylistic manner to elicit a specific reaction from an audience 
directing your audience to only ever feel a certain way while watching your film. And that's got to be hard to do. Like technically speaking, it's got to be hard to be, to approach it in that psychological way across the whole film. And I would say that the mixture of the bizarre backwards music, the bizarre backwards footage, there were specific shots that stood out to me, specifically the the tumbling fuselage that's reversing back into its explosion, TVs randomly exploding, um, looking at all of the ephemera of the some of the advertisements on on screens and the clothing. There was a something I didn't mention in the first part is there was a crap ton of beige trench coats. <laughs> I had no idea that many people in big cities wore trench coats. Yeah. Yeah. Here's a question. Is it going to make you watch the other two in the trilogy? Yes, it is. Absolutely. I don't know what, I, I forget what the intention of uh, Pawakatsi was, which that's was the, the, that's the second one. I don't know. I think I th could be wrong, but I think it's international, but I could be wrong. I would, I would assume so because Koyaniskasi, despite the name being of Indian origin, uh, is entirely of U.S. landmarks and iconography and culture and uh, cityscapes. It's all in the U.S. Yeah. So I'm assuming Pawakatsi goes international and then Nakwakatsi is um, specifically of technological yeah. imagery. Yeah. So yeah, it, it's a, it's a one-of-a-kind film. There really isn't anything else that I've seen that's like it. And those images will be burned into my brain. So I, I Of I that I agree. Of that I fully agree. <laughs> I, I have to give it props for that. Um, those are the kind of films that I really appreciate stumbling upon. Is something that is that unique and that aesthetically interesting. And then Dig, because it, it was a film that gave me exactly what I wanted to find out of this marathon, which is a, a raw documentary presentation that is entirely candid, isn't concerned with cinematography at all, and it presents to you a story that, you know, you're getting these anecdotal moments in real time from several different years. And, it you know, this director found these bands in their early moments and said, can I film you just about at any moment? I don't know how long she must have been following them for. Years. At, a, at any given point. She just probably came and went with them and you, for years. She'd have to. Yeah. And I can't imagine what interesting things she missed. Oh, I'm sure plenty. But it's... it's so... So my favorite was, without a doubt, Dig. It's, it actually, what it is too, is if you want to understand that era of music and that time in the 90s, at the moment, I can't think of a better documentary. Yeah, because it, it, I wouldn't call it a time capsule of the 90s. I would no. call it a, a great snapshot of underground music. It's a window into that very specific genre and time. And it is it is a really good window into it because it is so real but so well constructed and you know what I realized what helps it the narration gives it this perfect through line like it actually really works to give to just connect it all yeah he uh Courtney who narrates portions of it is not telling you anything you don't already know I think he's he's giving good transitional 
narration to fill in the gaps, probably yeah. because the director didn't get footage of those moments. Oh, yeah. But so that, without a doubt, was my favorite one. It's just so it's a testament to editing, to be clear. Yes. My God. There had to be tons more footage having to sift through over years. Oh, yeah, I'm sure easily that film probably took two years to edit. I have no doubt in my mind. Gotta wonder how many VHS tapes that was. Oh, an insane amount. I'm sure. I'm sure she basically had to go through the VHS tapes, pick like probably a quarter of them that were like good, because she couldn't transfer all of them. Then pick the quarter, and then use those. And then probably she probably at times would go back and see if there's anything else she would have used. And it, yeah, easily two years. This probably it probably took her a little while, because. Well, yeah, it, it, ended, almost, no, it ended in 1997 and the movie came out in 2000. So, yes. Yeah. So, so it took it, about uh, two years. It may have been DV tape, and I'm going to guess it was all digitized and edited on a nonlinear computer system. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Dig was my favorite. Since you mentioned two, I'll mention my second favorite. It's actually tied between Into <laughs> the Inferno and uh, Electric Boogaloo. Couldn't You couldn't get two two more different documentaries. I understand that. But they both had this, um, well, okay, Electric Boogaloo had this energy about it that really was just amazing to watch. I'm also biased because I think, because seeing one of my professors in it kind of energized me a little bit. <laughs> but I have I never personally met him, even though we, we both went to SCAD. I never actually uh, met the guy, and I don't even think I passed him in the hallway. That, I'm su- that part I'm surprised. I'm surprised you never passed him in the hallway, but he... He, great, one of my favorite professors, without a doubt. Uh, Professor Engelbach, if you're listening, which I doubt, thank you for everything. Uh, you didn't deserve to have your scripts ruined by by what they... Menachem Golem. By Menachem Golem, so I'm sorry. Um, but it was that one, and Into the Inferno was so powerful because, A, the footage in that movie, holy shit, my God, it just... To see rivers of lava, real level rivers of lava, not CGI'd, not recreate, not, not on sets. Not models in Revenge of the Sith. Not models, real lava flowing. You can't fake that. You can't. And I think that because it also had this incredibly personal aspect to it too, which only, only he could do. Only Werner Herzog could do. I've, I've yet to see a documentary that is done in a similar approach. Yeah. He can only, he, only he can get personal like that. Because he's also the only documentarian who gets away with being the director and you hearing him ask questions. Yes. You usually, yes. You usually can maybe accept that one time in a documentary. Maybe. There's only a, a couple of the documentaries that get away with it, but they're the but they're the narrator. I'm talking where you hear him talking over the in the cam like over the camera. Yeah, it when they're when he's interviewing the people, not not overlaid later, but yeah. in the moment. Because yeah. the reason why it works is it he turns it into just a conversation, mm-hmm. and it's so good, it's so pure. Um, I like that he connected his earlier documentary because it makes me want to see his other documentary. It was lovely. Yeah, I saw it several years ago. I've heard it's fantastic. It's the only one that ever got him an Oscar. Can you believe he's only been nominated for an Oscar once as far as his documentaries go? No, I can't. (laughs) That's shocking, right? That's really crazy. Like, at least, and I'm sure, because the one that, uh, what was that other one called? 
uh, Encounters at the Far Edge of the World. That's the one that got a nomination. It didn't win, but it got a nomination. And it's understandable why. Why, why it would have gotten a nomination. Oh, I'm sure. It, I'm, it's, I bet it's fantastic. I'm, I'm going to look it up. But Grizzly Man, Encounters at the Edge of the World, and Into the Inferno easily should have been nominated. How Into the Inferno wasn't nominated? Well, because it was made by Netflix and there were those politics back then. That, Netflix, that could be the case. Netflix yeah. original movies couldn't be nominated, but they gave that up real quick. But anyways, those are my two second favorites because they were so, so darn good. <laughs> um, are there any documentaries that you know of that I didn't mention that you want to see one day? That I haven't seen or have seen? Haven't seen. Haven't seen. Okay. Um, Shoah, which is the first real feature-length documentary about the Holocaust. Apparently it's close to three hours long, but Steven Spielberg used it as direct research and influence for Schindler's List. I think Oscar Schindler might be mentioned in it at some point. I do not know this for a fact. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like it's a very important documentary to see. So that's one of them. Um, another documentary. Well, for a while it was Grey Gardens, but I did eventually see that. Um, and it's as fascinating as you can imagine. Well, Paris is burning because I just learned that was a documentary. I didn't know how you wouldn't know that. I knew nothing about it. I really didn't. I just knew it was iconic in LGBTQ cinema, but I really didn't know it. I don't know anything about it. Hmm. Um, to, I'm being honest. I mean, I'm ashamed to say it, but <laughs> I don't. I don't know much about it. So there's that one. Um, also, I've seen a good amount. Um, obviously, Encounters at the Edge of the World, but that's very recent. Um, okay, the ones we missed. I'll say that. I want to see both of them. Oh, yes. There is a documentary about uh, the painter Basquiat. Um, It's like a PBS special documentary. It's like an hour and a half long. I've seen clips of it. It's called The Radiant Child. It is available on YouTube, I think, for free. But I'd like to pay for it in some way, so maybe I'll rent it. Um, apparently I've always been fat. I got, I became fascinated with Basquiat after I saw some of his work and I saw it as a teenager and thought it was really ugly. I'll admit. And then later on I learned about his life and then I saw the biopic about him. Uh, and it's fantastic. I was so amazed by it, uh, and enthralled by it. I argue it's one of the best, I think it's one of the best biopics ever made. Um, and so now I want to learn more about this person's life and I want to see the documentary about him. So that would be, those are the ones. What about you? I know there's a film about the response to and the current life of the the guy who starred in the Flash Gordon film in 1980. Like it's following the, the film's original reception, probably its production, and then following that actor who uh, I think was blacklisted after the film came out. And so he didn't work again. He just lives off the fame of that one film now. Oh my God, I didn't know that. And in a similar vein, I need to finish uh, the worst movie ever made about Troll 2. Hmm. I need to see Troll 2. Um, and then in a similar vein to that, I need to. I want to see Heart of Darkness which you mentioned earlier. Oh, it's amazing. But you need to see Apocalypse Now. Which is one of the only like top-tier films I've still never seen. Mm. 
Um, I think I was avoiding it for the same reason I was avoiding other Vietnam films and avoiding stuff like, um, yeah, Full Metal Jacket and A Clockwork Orange. But yeah. I eventually saw both of those. And so Apocalypse Now, I think, would be a piece of cake to see <laughs> along with those two. So full me- compared to Full Metal Jacket, yes, absolutely. It's a piece of cake, I think. It's still very intense, but compared to that film, it's it's much easier to watch. Um, but still intense. Um, but yes, you need, if you cannot watch Heart of Darkness until you watch Apocalypse Now. Because you need to see what it created. Mm-hmm. Um, I would also say a documentary that came out recently that I genuinely think you would like is The Sparks by Edgar Wright. It's about the famous Sparks brothers who kind of got really famous at one point but never fully hit it off, gained a huge cult following over the years. But it's a, it, it runs a touch long, but it's a really great documentary. And it covers everything about them. Everything. Oh, and another documentary, I'm sorry, another documentary I want to see, but it's currently out in theaters at this moment, is Roadrunner, which is the story of Anthony Bourdain. This is despite the fact that I've learned that they used artificial intelligence to recreate his voice to read emails that he wrote at one point. Yes, that is creepy. I'm still interested in the documentary. <laughs> yeah, for, for being a voice actor, the recreation of voices like that is unsettling, not because we can do it, but because it can also take away voice actor jobs very oh, yeah. easily. Yeah. Because you would hire a sound alike if you weren't doing that. Well, what they sh- what they should do is at that point they should just acknowledge that he died, which is the entire movie, and just have an actor or a friend read it. Sure. If you need it, but no, they. It's just very strange. Any final thoughts or final words? So now that we've covered uh, documentaries, and we will definitely come back to this subject at a later date for part two, um, our next marathon is going to be on LGBTQ cinema. And I think that was, that was what we were thinking of uh, initially, even before our previous marathon. And I figured the, the best approach would be to try to find one or two films from every maiden letter. Yes. Now, we understand there is a lot of debate over the extensive, how extensive LGBTQ is. As Jonathan said, and this is not meant to offend or upset anybody, we are doing LGBTQ. This is simply for the sake that we really are trying to limit it to eight movies max. So right. this is really the only way we can ostensibly do this. Let's be clear. Under every identity, I welcome the opportunity for some sort of film or some form of self-expression and hope one day that that will happen. But for now, for the sheer sake of, the, of us being able to do this, we have to stick under LGBTQ. And uh, those are the subjects that you will find more films about. You will find a lot of films about lesbians. You will find a lot of films about gay men. You will find more films than I expected, uh, very thankfully, about uh, transgender individuals. You will find a handful of films that you can maybe attribute to bisexuality. That's a bit more uh, up in the air. And then in terms of queer... You can pick any movie. Yeah, I, I always was of the impression that queer was a catch-all term. 
And so I figured we should find films that talk about um, cross-dressing and drag queens for that section. And funny enough, I have never seen Rocky Horror Picture Show. So that needs to be on the list. They can't for the... see my face, but I'm shocked. <laughs> First of all, you need to go to a live viewing of it at some point in your life. Yes. Uh, I, I actually uh, nearly dated somebody who was in one of those. Oh, wow. Well, there is, I don't know if you want us to reveal where we live. I will not. But near where I live, once COVID is fully over, there is a theater that every once a week at midnight, they do a showing of Rocky Horror. Yeah, he was part of that one. Oh, he's part of that one. Mm -hmm. I don't know if he still is. Oh, wow. Okay. So, yeah. Um, And it's fantastic. Full credit. We won't say what movies we're watching yet. That'll be for the next time we do this. We'll tell you then. Yeah, we don't know necessarily what we're going to cover. I have a long list that's worked out with maybe um, 12 to two dozen for each letter. Um, and I, I just had a couple that I demanded that we put in there, but otherwise <laughs> I was good. Right. I do think ultimately we'll see two lesbian films because there were there were two that stood out to me. So those may be on my side of the list. And I simply insisted that we have at least one movie directed by John Waters. Yes, because we have to consider films that may not be about LGBTQ characters, but are directed by um, lesbian, gay, in... bi, or transgender people, Yes, which would have its own category. And also, John Waters is a pinnacle of all of this, t- the LGBTQ cinema. And he's actually a pinnacle of independent cinema in general. Mm-hmm. Let's be clear. Independent cinema or... Indie movies, indie film would not be what it is and would not be as big as it is without him. But he is also, he's a pinnacle of that and he's a pinnacle of LGBTQ cinema. And I've never seen any of his films. And I'm going to show you the best one. All right. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Um, I can't be certain that we will have a standalone episode next. So we will likely be doing our next marathon for the next major release on this podcast. You can find my social media linked in the description as well as on the website for the podcast and our Twitter. And just to add, uh, if anyone listening feels we've missed a documentary, please let us know. We're very curious what you want to say. If there's some masterpiece out there that we're not aware of, write it in the comments. Now, I will say, and this isn't us bragging, we went to film school. We've seen a lot of documentaries. So there's a lot we already didn't include here because we had a whole class around it. Yeah, and I've, I've seen at least 100 documentaries before now, not stuff that was specifically on television. They're, they were standalone. But I definitely want to see more, and I honestly prefer to see documentaries that um, do enough unique things. I like seeing them about unique subjects. I like seeing them done in unique directorial fashions. And I definitely want to see more of the raw, candid style documentaries. The the uh, the in-your-face ones. The in-your-face ones that don't interview people off in a, in a corner with uh, three-point lighting. Yes, those are really special. Thanks, everybody. Catch you all next time.
You've been listening to Framin' the Shot, produced and hosted by Jonathan Leiter, a.k.a. Filmmaker J, and co-hosted by Cotton Chivarelli. I'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in this week and giving our show a try. If you have any suggestions of topics you'd like to see us cover on the show, please be sure to follow us and leave a comment on your favorite podcasting app or tweet us at F-R-A-M-I-N, The Shot, over on our Twitter page. The goal for this show has always been to explore specific subjects, unique areas, and case studies about film production in order to get to the heart of what makes a truly great movie experience. And I see no shortage anytime soon in the topics we could cover. But that's it for this week, everybody. We'll catch you next time.